This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, the latest from the Rwanda fallout as Tories turn on each other over the bungled batshit plan. Why are so many people who should know better still trying to make Rwanda happen? Plus, Labour divisions are back in the news after a slew of rebellions and resignations over the Gaza ceasefire vote. How did it get so nasty and what does it mean for Starmer's leadership? Let's meet the panel. Marie Leconte is a columnist and author of Escape. Hi, Marie. Hello. Uh, Evening Standard owner and Baron of Hampton and Siberia, Evgeny Lebedev, has become obsessed with free speech, interviewing a range of figures, including Trollish rapper Azealia Banks and Batman villain Jordan Peterson. What's going on with (laughs) Evgeny? It, I genuinely have no idea because, uh, amazing, so I, I used to work at the Evening Standard um, and I'm pretty sure, I need to double check, but I'm pretty sure they managed to make every single person I knew they're redundant over the years. So uh, <laughs> I, I no longer, uh, you know, all people kind of just driven out by George Osborne. Um, so, so I don't really have a kind of inside view anymore. And I don't know, so, so I've seen all of that happen, the kind of front pages going on. I, I feel like that's become part of the London experience now to like, walk to your tube station in the evening or from your tube station, glancing at the evening standard and going, what? Um, like, every other front page is mystifying. But I don't my main theory is just that Lebedev, so apparently like the money side of things for the standard is going so badly at the moment that he's pumping some of his own money into the business because that's the only way to keep it afloat and to be sort of fair to him in a weird way I'm like you know what if I had to spend I think something like 18 million a year or something on a newspaper of my own money I would pick you know my, my pet interest and be like well I have decided that Londoners care about this now but but you know beyond that again I, I find the free speech thing deeply deeply odd and you know and he's meant I know again I feel torn on that because I was about to say he's in the house of lords he definitely has a job he should be doing more yeah, stuff and he has free speech <laughs> in the lords if he turned up I know but but then obviously I caught myself and I was like no actually you know what I'm not convinced I want you to be more <coughs> of a lawmaker um, as a you know as a, as a person living under the law so maybe maybe fine maybe actually you go Yevgeny you keep uh, writing about Jordan Peterson because that's what Londoners love I would like to see a version of the Union Standard that was for London rather than kind of like a fanzine for its publisher and editor. Someone should, yeah, someone should come up with that idea at some point. Um, Great. So basically your answer is you have no idea except that he's just like, fuck it. Well, yeah, but also I think the problem is that they, yeah, again, they've got no money. So they, you know, if you've actually picked it up recently, the paper, it is so thin. I mean, when I worked there, it was a proper newspaper. We made every single day. And even looking, you know, my own example of the diary column used to be two pages written by a team of four people. I think it's now not even half a page. Um, so, so everything has become so small. They don't have enough money for proper reporters anymore, for proper features, for proper investigations, etc. So what do you do in that case? You just print batshit insane opinion from the owner? Um, yeah, well, uh, London is a mad for uh, Azalea Banks. <laughs> who, <laughs> I, had, am, I do love her, to be fair. Who had fair. a single hit in Tony Eleven. No, she's and, great. She's, I, I really like her. So that, fine, fine. He got me with that one. Uh, Gavin Esler is a veteran journalist and author and now the presenter of the newly revamped This Is Not A Drill podcast. Hi, Gavin. Hi. What is the deal with This Is Not A Drill? 
Well, uh, we're building on the great work done by Arthur Snell. Uh, we've, uh, I'm not entirely telling you the news by saying that the world is an increasingly dangerous place. I've got the statistics to prove it. Uh, you know, uh, we talked in the 1990s about a unipolar world and uh, the triumph of uh, Western values and democracy. That's all gone. And what we're seeing is a democratic recession. We're seeing uh, some interesting people uh, in positions of power, including the new president of Argentina, Javier Mille. Um, the idea behind it is try to try to make sense of our world for an audience that has not had enough of experts, because one of the things that we've discovered is that so many of our politicians don't really know what they're talking about. So we'll talk to some politicians who do know what they're talking about, but we're trying to focus on people who can really understand, for example, in our first uh, uh, edition, do we actually have a year to save American democracy? Is Trump coming back? What would Trump unbound really look like? And we talked to Bill Crystal from a long-running Republican family, and Sarah Churchwell, who's a brilliant American historian who has looked at some of the extremists within American society and why they have such appeal. So that just gives you a bit of a flavor. Uh, no spoilers, but I'm sure they conclude that it's uh, it's fine and there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> um, not not entirely. No, oh, well, think, okay, okay. I think I would suggest that they are... <laughs> cautiously pessimistic. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, that makes sense. Uh, Hannah Fern is a columnist focused on social affairs. Hi, Hannah. Hello. The British Medical Association has called for the NHS to ban the recruitment of physician associates. Um, people outside the NHS might not understand why this is a big deal. Why is it? Who are they? I'm so glad that the BMA has said something about this because I've been trying to sell a story on this for a year. Nobody's interested. But it's a huge issue. Basically, they are fake doctors, to put it in a very uh, un-PC way. They were designed, it's a new role designed to plug the workforce gap in the NHS. Obviously, there's massive demand, not enough doctors. It takes seven to 12 years to train a doctor. So they needed to do something. These new physician associates, they are usually people who've done a biomedical sciences undergrad degree and then go on to do two years of training as a physician, physician associate. But they're not trained as doctors. It's a very generalist training. They have no specialities. And uh, they are now going out in front of patients. They are, they are clinical roles. They are patient decision makers, as it were. They are doing things like breast cancer triage. So if you're on a two-week wait for, for a lump in your breast, you when you go to the doc, uh, hospital and you see somebody in that clinic, you would expect a doctor to be diagnosing whether or not your lump is breast cancer. Very often it's somebody who is not a doctor, is a physician associate. Um, they're making all kinds of clinical decisions in GP surgeries. Very often, the person who has seen them doesn't realise they're not a GP. So you could be making an appointment. You think with your with your surgery about an ongoing issue, and you're seeing someone who is not a trained doctor. I may have had one of those recently. Almost certainly, you have. GPs have been very worried about this for some time. They've been talking to me about their fears. They've been saying they've seen loads of cases of people being poorly or misdiagnosed, particularly around missing the kind of big picture, whole health issues. You know, if you see your GP about something minor, they often ask, say, particularly an older person, a couple of questions that might unlock a much bigger issue, like an underlying cancer or something. They're not able to do that. They simply don't have the training. And in a lot of places, they are earning quite a lot more than doctors actually earn as well. Not initially, uh, not doctors of, of many years experience, but out of a, a, a two-year um, training course, you can start on a much higher salary than a junior doctor. So 
it's a huge issue. And the BMA is now at the point where they're saying, stop, we can't be sure of the security of this for people's health. It's unsafe. We need to do something before we cause a massive problem in the NHS. I mean, it doesn't sound safe. Yeah, it's like not. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an expert. But if you'd pitch this to me, um, I would have said, "Don't, don't do that." I know. The difficulty is for a government in crisis is that they needed to do something to plug the massive gap in the NHS workforce, and you can't train a doctor any quicker than training a doctor takes. But giving these people so much freedom and so little oversight. Uh, is seems to be the problem. So you can keep them on as long as they say to patients, by the way, I'm not a real doctor. <laughs> um, I'm I'm going to give it my best shot. I bought but... these clothes on eBay. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea who you are, who I am. I, I, I don't I really could be wrong. Um, brilliant. Okay. Um, before we move on, a bit of uplifting consumer news. The Podmasters Christmas online market is open again with brand new merchandise from Oh God, What Now? plus Origin Story, The Bunker, Paper Cuts and more. There are new designs including luxury belief mugs and t-shirts and for the Romaniacs old guard, new t-shirts that read, hate to say we told you so, which will endear you to any leavers in the family. There's a 10% Black Friday discount for everyone and Patreon people, if you use the special Patreon store, you get a 25% discount. Just visit podmarket.co.uk, that's podmarket.co.uk, or click the link in the show notes, or if you're a patron backer, there's a message in your inbox now. First this week, the Tories are embroiled in yet another farce of their own making as they try and prop up the collapsing Rwanda plan with authoritarian blue tack and matchsticks. Gavin, our old friend Ian Dunst said on Substack, they're trying to sound tough, but the reality is that they're double square fucked. <laughs> he did a swear. It's all set up now. The road ahead is relatively clear. This is Brexit 2.0. What first played out as tragedy will now be conducted as farce. Why do they care so much about this after a resounding um, defeat? Why can't they not let it go? Well, I, actually, I, I think I was trying to think exactly what could they be thinking about. And I've come to the conclusion that this is they're, they're a bunch of political bedwetters. You know, when a kid wets the bed they get a real sense of relief and a feeling of warmth. But then somehow a grown-up has to clean it up. And this, to me, is something very similar. They're not trying to solve this problem. I mean, who would have come up, who would have come up with the idea of, I know, I know, let's send them to Ascension Island. No, 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 we can't do that. Let's send them to Rwanda and then say, we're going to pass a law to declare that Rwanda is safe. I mean, you know, the, the only historical parallel I can think of that is when the papacy decided to tell Galileo uh, in the 1630s or something that uh, he couldn't actually say that the earth went round the sun. The sun clearly went round the earth. And Galileo said, yeah, whatever, I'll do whatever you say. And then later he said, and yet it moves. It pushed them over. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to distract us with something that they know they can't solve. And it maybe makes them feel warm and maybe they get a feel of feeling of relief, but it's just going to go on and on and on. And I think it's very unlikely that anybody will end up being sent to uh, Rwanda. But I could be wrong. They could be, uh, they could be suddenly lucky and solve all our problems. So, I mean, is what they're proposing here with this legislation and various uh, workarounds, is it just the kind of the, the bow tie version of Lee Anderson's fuck it, we're going to put them on the planes anyway solution? Same instinct, but kind of slightly classier. Well, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to do that. I mean, I don't think 
the House of Lords is going to swallow this. The courts certainly don't swallow it. And the idea, you know, we're getting back to that narrative. We saw it before about the enemies of the people and the prorogation of parliament. The courts are one of the great checks and balances of our democracy that do seem to work. And they're prepared to ride roughshod, it would appear, over that. I think there are sufficient people uh, within even the government who think this is batshit, including, I think, James Cleverly is supposed to have said it, uh, although he hasn't actually confirmed that. So we will see where it goes. But I think they prefer a row to a solution. I don't think they're trying to distract us with Rwanda. I think they're trying to distract themselves. But it just strikes me as massive displacement activity, um, where they, they know they're screwed and they don't know what to do about it. So they're kind of just like, this one thing, you know, and I felt like in a weird way it's quite relatable. It feels like a very human feeling to go, everything in my life is fucked. <laughs> but if I build this IKEA cabinet, which is missing some screws, everything will suddenly magically be fine. And you're kind of like hammering at it in your bedroom because you're like, but this will fix everything. This will be fine. Like that, that's, I don't know, at least that's kind of what I'm seeing in the Rwanda. Um, We're both talking about displacement activity, aren't we? I'm talking about letting the bed, you're talking about building a cabinet. Whatever it is, it's not attempt an attempt in a real world to solve problems. And, you know, there's a brilliant book by a guy called Heinderhaus, who was a professor at Oxford, who's now professor at Amsterdam University, uh, where he busts 22 myths about migration one after the other, boom, 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 and talks about what you would need to do to address this problem. And it isn't anything that the government is ever talking about. So I think maybe they should read a book, find an expert. Uh, Hannah, Sunak has ruled out leaving the European Convention on Human Rights and repealing the Human Rights Act, uh, which is only popular with sort of 20% of um, essentially racist headbangers in the electorate. Um, considering this scheme is very expensive, involves very small numbers, um, it's generally not a good idea. But Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, wants emergency legislation to disapply the HRA and ignore the ECHR in asylum cases. Now, I didn't know that you could do that. And then if you had laws and conventions and treaties, I didn't know that you could just go when it's inconvenient. Not this time. Is that, is that a thing that you can do? That's what they're trying to legally argue. That, as you say, it's very specifically in what they would call, um, you know, specific and unique circumstances. It reminds me of the whole argument a couple of years ago in the, in the Brexit negotiations where, oh, let's just break the law in these very specific and unique circumstances. It's the same argument, but, you know, how does that work? The obvious point is it doesn't because you still have to make that legal case. And the, the idea that there's going to be an acceptable, that the, that the courts are going to approve legislation, you know, the, the lords, as you say, are going to approve legislation that basically just steps out or disapplies the act in these unique circumstances is is fanciful. It's not going to happen. I mean, the interesting thing is that their argument for it, why they think they can get this through, is that they say they're going back to Rwanda and they're going to get a you know, much tighter agreement on the issue around sending asylum back, seekers back to their country of origin. So the, the, the big argument um, against this uh, in the um, Supreme Court was around would Rwanda be very likely to send people back to dangerous nations which of their origin. Which is refoulement, which is a exactly. word I've never heard of before. No, indeed. It's a French word. Excellent. Well done. Please, it's, please it's being brought into use. <laughs> um, refoulement sounds like when it you does, it sort of reads shut yourself like twice. Doesn't it? <laughs> so. Uh, so, it's, they are going. They claim they can get this, you know, real belt and braces agreement with Kigali that 
that that won't occur. This seems hubristic, considering all the things that the government cannot sort out in Britain. The idea that they can go to Rwanda, a country with many, many issues, Hmm. and just sort of sort out their asylum system remotely. I mean, this is the second part of their argument. The other thing they say is that the information that the courts were working on about Rwanda is out of date and that the UK has worked to, and I quote, strengthen its institutions in the meantime. So it's basically just going back and saying, you've got it wrong. We've done some tinkering. Look at it again. It's never going to get through. And they all know that. I mean, even Hunt is distancing himself from this now. They all know it's not going to work. Marie, uh, Sarah Braverman's so-called plan got a lot of media coverage. Is, is it a plan or is it marketing for brand Braverman? I think she wanted some attention. I'm not convinced that, <laughs> you know, that there was much else going on behind Do- that. Dominic Cummings also had a plan. Surely you don't think he wanted attention. <laughs> oh, my God. What was it? The Dominic Cummings thing was in, like, part of it was extrajudicial killings. It was, <laughs> it was like gunboats yeah, no, like, I'm sorry, what? It's like, very I'm... simple. Guns. <laughs> no, no, because wasn't it? Because no, it, it, it was a list of fucking, like, I think, like, 14 things. And one of them was, just, you know, and gunboats. So, like, well, no, hang, hang on, hang on. Like, between, between seven and nine, what did you say? Um, no, so I think Braverman, I'm not... I'm not convinced she was expecting to get sacked so soon, um, as, you know, evidenced by the completely unhinged letter that she wrote, <laughs> which was not unlike, you know, you remember um, Eminem's uh, great <clears throat> song, Stan, I feel like, you know, just, like, but, but it was so undignified. All I wrote to you six times that I would not be admitting that in public if I were you, but issue their own. Um, no, I'm not, yes, yeah, so I'm not convinced she had a plan. And also, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about it some more later, but she knows that her people don't currently have the numbers for anything. So, yes, yeah, so I do, I do think that was kind of her being like oh look at me I'm very angry and And yeah that's that because the thing is when it's it's very hard to know what to be worried about because what she is expressing when she talks about excluding all avenues of legal challenge which is just a brilliant uh, Mm. way around the problem Lee Anderson going just do it anyway Dominic Cummings and his gunboats I mean, this is a kind of explicit authoritarianism and people are worried that this could be the Tories in opposition. But I mean, is this, are they speaking for, I mean, they're not really, they're not speaking for the people and they're not, are they speaking for a large section of the Tory party that could become dominant? Just like, let's, let's just say the only thing that matters in parliament and then, well, actually half of parliament Mm. and then like bin everything else. That seems like quite a pitch. It's, I'm not, I, I don't know, I'm slightly torn on that. So I would say that they don't speak for the Conservative Party. Like I spoke to some Conservative MPs after that debacle and, you know, and all of them, which probably says m- more about the Tory MPs I know than anything else. But, you know, all of them are scandalised and going, of course, they're all insane people who don't really want to have anything to do with them. But at the same time, you know, I, th- I think, I, I don't know, I, I've perhaps been too kind to the Tory centre in the past because they also don't really do anything. You know, they, they have the numbers. Like if, if they wanted to really crush that side of the party, they almost certainly could because there are more of them than there are of the other lot. Um, but also they're entirely happy getting steamrolled um, time and time again. So, so I, I would say that I, I don't think we would end up with a Tory party that is completely captured by the kind of Lee Anderson, Suella Braverman wing. Um, but that being said, again, time and time again, has been like, but surely the One Nation lot know that they can just stand up and then they just do not stand up. Well, well Damien so, Green yeah. and Tobias Elwood compared, uh, compared her to Putin, Xi Jinping and just general dictators. Mm. And you think if you believe that, then maybe you should do something about it. It's like that thing when Tories just go, you know, anonymous... Mm. Anonymous denunciations, like I'm very unhappy about this. Well, it's like, well, maybe you should just like just stop them. 
Yeah, in, in that case, why not simply do something? So no, so I still, on balance, I would say that I, I doubt they will take over. But at the same time, I can still see the party slide. Because again, I think, you know, like, it is worth remembering that Rishi Sunak is a right-wing conservative prime minister. Like, he's not towards the centre of the Tories. So if he wants to kind of get dragged to the right, then he can. Gavin, um, last time you in the podcast and Rwanda came up, um, you suspected, as you, as you just said, that Sunak would pitch the government against the elites and the courts and the lords and its enemies of the people redux. But you know, the difference seems to be that a lot of people at that point, we're talking 2017 through 19, cared very strongly about Brexit. Does the Rwanda scheme have the same popular appeal? Like there was even talk, probably from Braverman again, I think, that you could you could fight an election on stop the boats. I mean, have they just, I don't see how this is as big a galvanizing, polarizing factor as um, Brexit. Am, am I wrong or are they wrong? No, I, I don't think it is either. I think I think the thing that puzzles me is I, th- I think they remain quite worried about the far right and the non-conservative far right and, you know, the, the, the formerly UKIP, now reform and all those kind of guys. Whereas all, obviously most of the votes are in the centre. I mean, they could presumably try to do something completely crazy and, and, and create, you know, if they find difficulty in the House of Lords, they could create 100 new peers because the House of Lords is already regarded by many in the public as ridiculous anyway. Um, I I think they are simply drawn into something which they cannot let go of now. They're stuck with it. And they, this talk about Rwanda, they have to just somehow keep going because to do a reversal would be too humiliating for them, however, however sensible that would be. Uh, Sir Jonathan Jones, a, a former government lawyer, says that the government's going to run out of time on the Parliament Acts to force the Rwanda bill through the Lords before a general election. Uh, and also, we've got to the stage where as as everybody else has been saying, it sort of seems to be okay just to break the law in a, a limited fashion, and as was suggested over over Brexit, and is now being suggested again. I mean, that is the excuse that any criminal would use. So, it, I just don't see where it's going to get them because they've already got the votes that are really energised by this. And even I'm speaking to you from the Kent coast, and here the. For instance, just up the road, the Dover constituency, Charlie Elphick was the was the MP here. His wife is currently the MP because Charlie went to jail. And it's definitely one that Labour think they could win. Now, if you don't care about the votes sufficiently to vote for the Conservatives in Dover, and could be wrong, maybe I'm wrong. But if you don't do it in Dover, you're not going to do it in other places either. Is it hard to wage war on the House of Lords when your new Foreign Secretary sits in the House of Lords? <laughs> that may be, that may be indeed a difficulty, and also it may be a difficulty because uh, I'm not quite sure how enthusiastic stopping the boats would be as a as a Cameron uh, proposal or plan. But we have uh, to yeah. remember the Batchet side goes back quite a long way. I mean, Theresa May got vans to go around mm. London saying in English, "Go home if you're not you're not welcome here if you're an if you're an illegal migrant." Uh, in English, uh, I mean, <laughs> the Batchet. Chittery is not confined to Suella Braverman. 
Uh, the reason we're saying batshit so much, which you can't do on some rival podcasts, um, right. is, <laughs> is uh, her new Home Secretary, James Cleverly, um, claims not to remember privately calling the Rwanda scheme batshit, which means that he did. Definitely. Otherwise, you just deny it, yeah. right? Um, now, he's a lot less jackbooty than Braverman. Um, he has been publicly more liberal on immigration in the past. So... Is he going to want to fight a losing battle for a plan he doesn't believe in when he's got so little in time in office to make an impact? And he's going to want to. He's probably got leadership ambitions or certainly other, you know, ambitions in the future. Um, and he, he's going to want, to want to do something as Home Secretary. Well, the first point is that, yeah, of course, he probably said that. I mean, I don't know. But the, the fact that he's claimed he can't remember it means, yeah, definitely. But he's just the only one who got caught out. They all know that no planes are going to take off. I imagine there's almost the entire cabinet has called it batshit privately. Um, it's just that he's the one where some where somebody's recorded it. And I've got a couple of friends who are inside the FCO and um, they all really quite like Cleverly. He was definitely doing something good there. So not surprised to hear that he thinks it's a load of old nonsense. Um, why is he doing this? I think... Sunak will definitely have said he's got no choice. It'll probably have been part of the job offer. You've got to dial down on that. But he's pushing it down to Genric and we'll just run the clock out on it. Yeah. So Genric's going to be the full guy. He'll be the one who looked like he stuffed it in the end if they need to blame somebody and, you know, the, the Tory heartland headbangers, brackets, racists who believe this is a good policy can just feel like it was Genric who screwed it up. But meanwhile, you've got cleverly able to come up and you know, stand for leadership and wash his hands of it. Jenrick has actually held, I think, one consistent role in cabinet, which is minister for like eating shit, because he's always the one that they send out on the Today programme or whatever to like insist that the moon is made of cheese or, or whatever they tell him to do. It's all, I'm always like, who is this guy? Because he's got a kind of boring voice. And whenever I hear him <laughs> on the radio, like midway through the interview, it's like, who is this guy defending this ridiculous policy? But sounding all, sensible. <laughs> it's always it's always generic. But is that, are you redoing the Nick Cave quote here? Right, no. exactly. The Red yeah, Hot yeah, Chili Peppers. The, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm, yeah, I hear something on the radio, and I'm like, "What's that shit?" It's always the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, it's yeah. always it's um, always generic. Well, I think so. it used to be Matt Hancock. I think you know the Minister of the Day program is is a proud role in British government. Um, I do Graham feel Schatz like got the, a royal as well. I do feel like the fact that generic does sound so absolutely tedious helps with you know the deflection technique as well. He's a great choice to to pin it on. Marie, uh, Sunak uh, laid out his priorities in a speech uh, earlier today, i.e. Monday. Interestingly, it was reducing debt, cutting tax, how he squares those two. I think we've seen where that one, the story ends. Uh, three, securing energy, four, backing British business, um, and five, world-class education. Um, I think th these are good. Th th three, four and five, I think, are, are good things. Yeah. Yeah. No small boats. Uh, so I wonder, is he is he moving on already to sort of things that, because you can't, you can say that he has not stopped the boats, right, if the boats are not stopped. Yeah. But you can't accuse somebody categorically of not backing British business. <laughs> it's a very vague pledge. And I just found it really interesting that already he's he's sort of not mentioning immigration in this big speech. So I, I wonder if that speech, I mean, to be fair for context as well, like this week is the week of the autumn statement. So it would make sense, I think, for him to be like, <clears throat> but anyway, <laughs> as, as we were talking about just recently. Um, so so, so I, I would say that it's partly that. And then I think so, I know I really enjoyed, I can't remember who it was, but some 
piece of briefing from number 10, which is like, actually, these are not five new things because they were all clear from one of his first speeches as prime minister or something. And it's like, okay, thank thank you for that clarification. But it's still that you still announced that as kind of like five big shiny things. So are you, why are you arguing the five big shiny things are not big shiny the things? The five pledges that I if found, you were writing yeah. a novel which had a fictional Tory prime minister at any time in the last like 40 years, you could mm. probably use those five pledges. No, exactly. And they would seem like, yeah, that's what he they say. He just really loves announcing five things, I think. Um, but no, so I mean, I'm not I'm not convinced that means that, you know, Randa, the Randa plan will go away forever. But yeah, the, this might be a, an effort, a, you know, an, a, an interesting effort to go, okay, can we at least spend, at least do one week talking about something else, which to be fair, if I were him, uh, I would definitely try and kind of, you never know, just like jangle some keys in front of my backbenchers to yeah, go, yeah. other stuff, please. I mean, world-class education there, though, is a tricky one. Why is he throwing that in? Because if you start to look at the comparisons, we're not doing great there. So if he's only got a year to be demonstrating mm. his commitment to that yeah. after 13 years in power. I think what he was going for was good things, not bad things. Yeah. That level of vagueness. That sounds yeah. right. Yeah, I, I'm, I think we're all in favour of good things on this podcast. Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Uh, Hannah. My hero is Patrick Valance. The reason is this. At the COVID inquiry this week, he admitted that he thinks and said at the time and still thinks that we should have locked down a week earlier. Now, why am I picking that? Obviously, the science demonstrated it, but it's because he's continuing to say that that would have been the right thing science-wise when everybody's revising their opinion of lockdowns retrospectively now and saying they didn't think this and didn't think that. But he's just getting out there and saying, no, that's what the science told us. And I, mm. I wish people had listened to me. Yeah. Um, my villain of the week is Rishi Sunak for another reason, which is around expanding his childcare provision. Um, the promise he made was that it would allow more people to work and so on, and it would be great for young uh, children. They would they would benefit from extra early years um, uh, education. But there's been a report from the New Economics Foundation this week that shows that richer families in England are six times more likely to benefit from that expansion as planned than low-income families where the children statistically really need those extra hours of uh, early years childcare to, so that we don't have a big gap when children enter um, reception class. So it's a stupid policy that doesn't work and it doesn't actually help. And also, cuts, apart from that, yeah, <laughs> cutting inheritance tax, I suppose, plays into a similar. Um, oh, yeah, well, let's talk about that one. Rich people um, narrative. God's sake, I mean, inheritance tax, literally, if you think you're going to pay for it, you're going to pay it, guys. You're not going to pay it. 3.7% of deaths incurred an inheritance tax charge last year, and you can pretty much leave £1 million of home to your children free of inheritance charge because of the loopholes and the way that you divide it up between kids and this, that and the other. Or if you don't have any children, I am available. I would love a million pound house. <laughs> Unfortunately, the government has thought about that and you would have to pay the money. A special yeah. Marie law. Thank you. Um, Gavin. My heroes of the week are British judges. I think we just need to realise that the Conservative government now has seems to say that they trust British judges less than they trust the people, the government of Rwanda. That's so weird to me. And I think the judges are, have done a great job of actually looking at the law and deciding what they've decided. I'm not a lawyer, but I think they've done a great job. And my villain of the week is Elon Musk. I don't need to say any more. <laughs> is, is this specifically in reference to where he kind of enthusiastically endorsed the anti-Semitic great replacement theory on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. that would be that. that would okay, be one just one reason. Yeah, okay. that would be that, that would be that would be one reason. Uh, and and also, I mean, the mess that is Twitter, uh, uh, which I refuse to call the other thing. But yeah, I, I just think, yeah, 
the um, uh, endor- endorsing the Great Replacement Theory seems to me to be probably not a very good thing for somebody in the public eye to, to um, um, so my hero is not political this week. Uh, it's Ridley Scott. Um, and I'm actually not even planning to go watch Napoleon because um, historical movies are not really my thing. But I've really, really enjoyed So what was it? You know, like, because we saw shots uh, of the movies and the trailers, etc. And historians started going, but hang on, no, this didn't happen like this. It didn't happen like that. And Ridley Scott's answer was going, oh, were you there? No, well, then I don't care. Or was it like he also, yeah, told critics to get a life. Um, <laughs> and then when a few, uh, a few French uh, magazines and papers published, I would say like mixed reviews of the movies. Uh, his response was the French don't even like themselves, <laughs> which I really like. I genuinely really like a movie director coming out swinging, being like "fuck yeah. you all." Picking fights with seven people at exactly the same time is actually the most Napoleon way of like promoting a Napoleon movie. So yeah, Ridley Scott, um, <laughs> and then villain is uh, Javier Milei, the new ugh, the new Argentinian uh, president. Um, and one of those, and I, I remember, I could not tell you when it was, but I definitely remember. A few months ago, I think it was my under the radar story uh, on Oh God What Now, when I was like, oh, fun fact, this nutter is running to be president in Argentina. He's probably not going to win, but check this guy out because he's insane. And yeah, and anyway, some months later, uh, he won because we, we, we can't have good things. And yeah, he's um, ultra right wing libertarian. Uh, he wants to abolish most government departments. He's a climate change denier. He wants to ban abortion. Uh, he wants to relax laws, I think, on selling both organs and children. Um, oh, the, the list is genuinely endless. And I, I feel really bad um, for people in Argentina. Even Swilla Braverman, I think, would look at that and go steady on. Like, come on, come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> come now. Um, apparently, I have to decide. I have to be like the Supreme Court and decide. Um, okay, so I'm, 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 I'm persuaded by the, the valence argument. This is just somebody just like, this is what I thought then, this is what I thought now, not doing the old Captain Hindsight routine. And we haven't mentioned the COVID inquiry yet. I'm going to put a pin in Javier mm. um, because he hasn't done the shit yet. And we're going <laughs> to talk about him later and he will be a villain for four years, however long yeah. the term is. Um, so I'm going to go with Musk because it's sort of weirdly not talked about enough, even though many, many uh, companies have withdrawn their advertising. Um, and that he then went and uh, retweeted a Holocaust denier. Um, so this is somebody who is um, who is doubling down all the time. Um, so let's have Musk again. I don't know. I'm not really a judge, I have to say. <laughs> so you can take your pick. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Last Wednesday night, Parliament voted on an SNP amendment to the King's speech to call for the government to, quote, urgently press all parties to agree to an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, and on Labour's rival motion to call for longer humanitarian pauses as a, quote, necessary step to an enduring cessation of fighting as soon as possible. Both amendments failed, but there was a substantial Labour rebellion of 56 MPs. Ten shadow front benches were sacked or resigned over the vote, including Jess Phillips. It sparked a wave of speculation over Gaza-related unrest within the party that rolls into this week. Could Starmer have avoided this? 
And despite there being no apparent shift in the polls so far, what problems could it cause for Labour? OK, Marie, first things first, right? There is no appetite for a full ceasefire from Israel or Hamas. So this isn't a vote like the Iraq war intervention in Syria, where it decides what happens in the world. Mm. But these amendments have been discussed as if they're equivalent to pro-war and anti-war. Um, I, somebody, somebody told me that you know that the um, that the Labour one was genocide denial. How far apart are they? Oh God, I think it's quite a tough question because they're not they're not that far apart in terms of what they would achieve because they will you know they would achieve nothing in practice. Let's be honest, because uh, again, you know, I don't think like either Hamas or the Israeli government are kind of like really waiting to see what the British <laughs> Parliament decides that it wants uh, them to do. As a result, I think you know it's a vote that's about signalling you know where Britain stands in the world on. Um, foreign issues on conflict etc so so i think weirdly as a result that because it's not which is maybe a slightly weird way to think about it but i think that because, because it's not it's going not to lead to a massive policy change actually the wording matters a lot um so so, so i i would say that yeah in practice there's not you know terrible amounts of uh, water between those two amendments but in practice given that nothing would change anyway words matter i don't know if that makes sense Joe Biden has pressured for certain humanitarian measures. He has talked about sanctioning, for example, the obscenely aggressive settlers in the West Bank who are forcing Palestinians out of their homes, apparently with the blessing of the Israeli government. What can international pressure achieve? When we talk here about, about signalling, if it, it can't bring about immediate ceasefire, what can it do? That's a, a very good question because Joe Biden is a player in this. The British government is not a direct player. We, you know, Sunak goes to the region and has some contacts and so on. We've got new foreign secretary. And the leader of the opposition in our country is much less of a player too. It's true that words words do matter, but what matters really is Biden and his relationship with, with Israel. And the trouble is, I think most of us just think, I wish this would stop. I wish the hostages were handed over to their families, and I wish the Palestinians had some kind of settlement which would uh, put things to right for them. But beyond that, the rest, unfortunately, does seem, and I see why Starmer did what he did, despite the divisions uh, within the party, because the last thing he wants to do is to have, have an echo of the kind of posturing that Labour that his predecessor sometimes did about big issues which he couldn't do anything about, but he could say things about. And one that strikes me, and I remember it, and thinking, gosh, I'm glad I'm not a political correspondent doing this today, which was uh, when Theresa May was prime minister, there was some very big event uh, about Brexit, Brexit failing, and so on. Prime minister's questions came up, and the first question from the leader of the opposition was, would the prime minister agree the treatment of the Chagos Islanders has been shameful? Now, I agree that the treatment of the Chagos Islanders was, was shameful, but that was something which uh, obviously Jeremy Corbyn cared very, very much about, but he wasn't going to get anything done about it. And it's the kind of politics that does seem to me to be um, frankly, ir irrelevant to most people, even though the issue is he was on the right side of, uh, continues to be on the right side of that issue. So what what I think Keir Starmer is doing is saying, I'm not like that, I'm something else, and I'm going to take a particular line. And I hope people like Jess Phillips and others, with, with whom you know I think their heart is in the right place, I hope that, that if there is a Labour government, they get their jobs back. You see, I wondered if he could have 
given a free vote because it is a matter of conscience. There are good, you know, good faith arguments on, on both sides about this wording. Essentially, both both amendments want, like you said, the, the killing to stop. Starmer insisted on a three-line whip and then came out and said leadership is about doing the right thing. Like, well, I could, see, he I have, think could he have handled that differently, given what you say? Yeah, sure. But if he'd said, look, we're going to have a free, we're going to have free vote in this, sections of the British media would immediately say, well, look at him. He wants to be prime minister. He hasn't got a clue what to do about it. And there is pressure on politicians to do something. This is something he cho- he chose to do that. And I think, to be honest, in a year's time, if we're having a general election next October or whenever next year, I don't think... Unfortunately, the conflict might be going on, but I don't think this particular issue for Starmer will be treated as if it's significant and the rebellion within his party will be something that we'll be talking much mm. about. No, I was just going to say, like, I don't know, because I do think actually like, a chunk, like, a fair chunk of Labour's electorate does really, really care about Palestine. Um, and, and actually, you know, and I think, and, and again, you know, and I'm, and I think it annoys me in a way that virtue signalling has become such a dirty phrase, because actually it is a thing. And sometimes it has a point, it is what it is. And it's not, again, it's not a, a dirty word, because I think that's what it is. And if and again, if you're trying to keep that kind of voting coalition together, I would say obviously don't don't come out, you know, don't, don't do the full Corbyn. Um, but I think just allowing MPs to vote with their conscience uh, should have been like sh- would have been fine. And again, and I'm not convinced. So I think uh, Gavin mm. to kind of nearly flip your argument the other way. I also think that newspapers would have forgotten about that vote, you know, like three months in anyway. <clears> so, um, so so I but yeah, yeah. I agree with you that the vote will be forgotten anyway. But I think in that for me that would have been a reason to let MPs vote the way they wanted, not the other way around. Hannah, Hannah, on that, given a choice between uh, discipline and listening to his MPs, Starmer like, chooses discipline every single time. Um, and that presumably is what he thinks is strong leadership. Mm. I mean, is he, is he a bad party manager? Because you could see this no. rolling on ever since his LBC interview. And it just felt like this ended up as badly, given all the caveats here, but in, as, in terms of, again, this is a, a sort of rancorous and messy as uh, as one could have imagined. I don't think it does mean that because this is just the impossible issue for Labour. And just to go back to what Marie said there, I think the, the, the flip side of, of that is that actually the party is so entirely split on this that having a leader-mandated vote... Um, you know, and going for an open vote rather than whipping means that you drag the entire party out into the open and force them into a public position. As it happens with a with a whipped vote, right. there will be some rebels who choose to make a, this an issue of conscience and and good good for them, of course. But that's then their choice. But the others don't have to force out into the open on what is basically. And and I do not mean this to underplay the seriousness at all, but we've discussed how this is not a change-making vote in any way. You know, that's not what a leader-in-waiting does. A leader-in-waiting acts to legislate, to make change happen. He knows a ceasefire isn't possible. He's talked very openly about how a ceasefire isn't possible. We've talked about it tonight. And this wasn't a failure to call a vote on peace. Mm-hmm. And people are deliberately confusing the two. I don't think it I don't think it means he's a bad party leader. This is just the impossible issue for him. And there and I think he handled it in the only way to re- reduce the damage, actually. I found this really agonizing, and I spent far too much time uh, uh, debating people um on this last week. Because it seems to me that, that however much sympathy you have for the victims of October the seventh, what what Israel is doing, 
is 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 horrific is killing far more civilians than, than than anybody i think could justify you know to whole families being wiped out and babies dying in icus because the hospital is ruined and i think it's so horrific and then you have a feeling of helplessness and what we're talking about is you can't really do anything right and so therefore you want to do something and going on a protest is something and that's uh, you know and that's valid but it feels like the amendment, what the SNP did, and again, you've got Hamza Youssef, who who had family there. Sure, they, yeah, I think they got, they got out. Um, you know, he wanted to do something. Now, I think both positions are legitimate, which is why I favoured sort of a free vote. But the reaction was that one side was either kind of, you know, naive and post or posturing or pro-Hamas, and then the other side was basically genocide deniers and war crimes apologists, um, and none of this, of course, helps the Gazans. And it just seemed to get so nasty. And the, the bit where I kind of snapped was the Green Party uh, tweets where they named and shamed every MP that don't vote for a ceasefire. And obviously these names are available on the Parliament website and the BBC website, whatever. But they were called the MPs who failed to vote for an end to the killing in Gaza. And then yeah. tagged onto that was basically a bid for disgruntled Labour voters. Around And they kept that up, uh, I think it's still up, as there were protests outside Labour MPs' offices, vandalism of one Joe Stevens. Like, did this become, Marie, did, did, did the reaction to this strike you as, as ugly or opportunistic? Like, I know, I, I found it really upsetting. I, well, so I think the, on the Green Party thing specifically, it's like they're very much, I don't know, like that. What slightly annoyed me is people going, oh, my God, you know, they're basically encouraging people to, you know, go, like, abuse and harass MPs and, like, agree or disagree with what they're doing. It's really not the first time, you know, people over, like, every stage of the Brexit wars, over so many issues, like, and every single party has been, like, there's the voting, like, these are the people who voted against or pro, like, that has been going on for as long as social media has been a thing, I think, just listing MPs and how they voted and kind of weaponizing that. Like, that is not a new thing at all. There's perhaps a, a wider argument to be made over should that change now that clearly you know um people are more willing to go protest in person and i'm not sure i've got the answer to that but then no more broadly and obviously it is you know it's busy something i've not spoken about at all on social media and i've not written anything about it professionally i think this is this podcast is literally the first time i've engaged with the issue mm. um in a professional fashion because no it, it, it's all become completely insane and i get and the problem that like, I have so much sympathy for it, or I, I, I get the strength of feeling. It's obviously, it's just a horrible conflict, and and I, you know, and I think everyone's different. Like my personal uh, approach is to just be so bowled over by the amount of death um, happening that I can't really say anything without it feeling cheap. And I and I totally get that for some people. Actually, that means having to speak up and be really angry online and be really angry in person, etc. But I think it's just it's just a lot of grief. I think ultimately, mm-hmm. and, and I'm sure some people are being entirely cynical, but I. I don't know, compared to some other political issues, I, I, I'm not convinced it's all cynicism. I think it's just tempers are running high because it's a horrible issue and lots of people are dying. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I do I do realise that there are emotions spilling out in all directions. I just wonder whether that, 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 that it's not a free pass. And at a certain point, if you are framing it as if these people could have voted mm. to end the killing... Yeah. And did not, I mean, which would have been yeah, bad. The idea would have been like, yeah, fine, yeah, I'm yeah. bad. Yeah. They could have, if only Labour, mm. but, but they didn't. And that, I think, is where the, the heat, and mm. I, like I said, I discussed this with quite a lot of people, and, so, and quite a lot of people did really believe that it could have. But that happens so often, though, with, like, again, so many votes in Parliament. 
And I'm not going to make myself popular like saying this on this podcast, but if you talk to Tory MPs, they get really annoyed by other parties saying, oh, well, Tory MPs voted against, you know, this insane amendment or whatever, which means that, you know, now, like, no baby will ever be happy ever again. They're a bit like, if you look at the amendment a bit closer, it wouldn't have worked or, you know, it was. So so I think that is also, to be fair, something that happens a lot, which, to be clear, I don't think is a good thing when it happens ever. But but, but that's become, I think, a complete and utter feature um, of British politics, just like complete bad faith, uh, I suppose, reading of the, all all that mix. And again, I, I wrote about it for GQ ages ago, but I think a mix of um, a kind of parliamentary culture which is really opaque and really hard to understand and also, you know, and people who may not understandably really understand it and also people who are kind of happy to maybe either exploit that um, for their own gain if you want to be cynical or just who maybe forget that people don't have that access to the knowledge of the quite arcane uh, ways in which the commons work. Gavin, the polls, uh, as we mentioned earlier, haven't registered any damage to Labour, even um, among Muslim voters, very few are saying that they would abandon the party over it. Does that mean that there is zero damage or is there damage within the party? Is there some legacy to this, to his reputation, to his authority? I'm really genuinely not sure there is. I agree with quite quite a bit of what Marie said there, and I have tried to avoid talking about this issue in a way because it is so prone to being misunderstood or sounding like a football match in which you'd have to take a side. And I just think that's just wrong, frankly. Um, I don't think there's lasting damage at all to Keir Starmer. I think um, he has put a bit of stick about about something and it will be okay in the end, as we said, because people will possibly forget it. And I think voters are not stupid. They understand how difficult it is. Whatever their background, whether they're on a march and, and uh, or not, not on a march, they understand how difficult this is. What can be done, however, is to think about what kind of solution for the future might be possible. What could happen Britain is a very small player in this. We've marginalized ourselves in Europe and we're therefore less important to the United States, but we can still do something. One of the things we can do is suggest that actually keeping Gaza as an open prison, which is effectively what it's been for years, is not a solution. It just bottles up as we've seen this tension. So there are things that that, that can be done that Labour could do and could do positively, which would appeal to whichever side you were on on this. And I don't think that people... Uh, within the Labour Party actually hate other people within the Labour Party for the way they feel about this because they too understand how complicated it is. There's a real degree of sadness from some of the some of the people about this for obvious reasons. Because mm. we could well see Starmer and Biden in office at the same time and therefore able to actually do something long term. However, this this particular conflict phase of the conflict ends in terms of um, peace settlements, or like I said, you know, just just pressure on on um, on these sort of atrocious um, behaviour from settlers in the West Bank, things like that. Yeah. So that might be a, a you know, like like you're saying, like a way forward. Yes, and I think there will be there will be accounting for Netanyahu within Israel itself, because not just for the immediate security failure, but for the fact that for years his policy has been actually contain it, and Hamas might not be such a bad thing actually for his his political uh, past. So, in other words, he was able to use the threat from Hamas to keep Gaza bottled up the way it was. So there will be a reckoning within Israel and it will be, I think, Britain and the United States may indeed have a role in the future. And it may be Keir Starmer who's one of the interlocutors of that. 
Hannah, I noticed that some people on the Labour right were getting very purgy and going, good riddance uh, to the MPs who leave the front bench. And there must be... Um, somebody was suggesting they see that he basically removed the whip from all 56 MPs. So, you know, there's some sort of hardline stuff. On the other side, you've got um, people going that, you know, all the young activists uh, who went out and canvassed, presumably for the Corbyn, are furious and, and they're going to leave and, and so on. Is it important not to go down like the the purge route? And is there, you know, is it important to at least send some messaging that you don't just like, oh, we'll go fuck yourself if you if you don't agree? Yeah, I mean, but that I think that is happening. As Gavin said, this vote is will it, be forgotten. What is, is Starmer saying that? I think the way the the way that the resignation letters were written right. was actually very careful. And quite beautifully done. Jess Phillips' resignation letter coming straight after the Braverman <laughs> escapade was very, very funny because it, she, it was a masterclass in how to write uh, a resignation letter about a moral issue, something that she felt she couldn't waver from, she couldn't turn from, but she still played an important role. She still supported Keir Starmer and so on. It's quite clear that she and others will be back when... Mm when, and it isn't an if, mm. uh, Labour form the next government. So the way that everything has just been quietly handled, they did what they felt was the most important thing to do, and Starmer accepted their resignation with grace, and that's sort of the end of it. I think that plays into the collective forgetting that will go on. Now, you you talked about activists then. Yeah, there are going to be a lot of young activists who are not going to forget this, um, and will probably want to talk about it when they're canvassing, <laughs> if they choose to canvass. But this isn't the kind of thing that's going to connect with voters on the doorstep, I must say, because hmm. I'm not suggesting in any way that they're disengaged with the world or they don't care and that they're not feeling desperate watching it unfold, but simply that, you know, they need to hear about the economy, the cost of living, the NHS, housing costs, taxation and wages... That's what they're going to want to talk about. And so actually the energies of a young activist, important as that is overall, isn't something that's going to connect with the swing voters anyway uh, on the doorstep. So if it drives away some extremely engaged 21-year-olds from canvassing, I don't think that's going to affect Labour's chances at all. Well, I suppose even talking about this whole thing from this, uh, from the angle of the amendments is a form of uh, displacement activity, um, considering that we can't do anything. That's right. I mean, again, the horrific th thing. that's the kind of... I, too, just like Marie and Gavin, haven't done anything about this apart from on this podcast. Am I the it's only not... idiot that has, yeah. that is yeah. out there yeah. in, in yeah. the trenches? <laughs> no, like... I've seen your tweets and it's like, well, I'm glad it's not me. Um, yeah. I, I just feel personally... You told me beforehand, just DM me. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel very personally that this is, no, first of all, absolutely not my area of expertise as a journalist, so why should I be in there anyway? But secondly, I just feel utterly powerless mm. and and no amount of, you know, feeling sad in public is going to make any difference to those poor babies who pictures I can't get out of my mind. We've reached the end of the show, um, so it's time for Escape Routes. Uh, Marie. I am so happy you've asked me. You will regret having asked me. 
I went to see Saltburn uh, yesterday, um, and it was so great. And I, and I, you know, and I do go to the cinema quite a lot. I would say I probably go about twice a month, um, quite religiously. So, so you know, so I'm not. It's not that I was just like wowed by being in the cinema. No, I just really <laughs> loved Saltburn. No, I didn't believe that you were just excited to be in the cinema. I don't know, man, I'm I... quite excitable, like you know, honestly. Like, <laughs> um, no, I used to go to the cinema three times last week, which is arguably too many, but that's a different topic. Uh, no, Saltburn. Okay, so the the pitches and and again, so I went in um, knowing very little about it, basically just because Barry Keegan was in it and I could watch him um, just read out the phone book for two hours. Um, and also just quite like fancy posh people on screen. Um, but no, so the, the, the pitch is, so Barry Keegan plays this like working class boy from a troubled family. So goes into Oxford uh, in the early noughties and um, falls in sort of friendship love, you know, with this incredibly beautiful, posh, rich uh, guy on his ear, uh, who obviously at the beginning does not even notice he exists in any way. Um, but then the two kind of form an unlikely friendship that is slightly homoerotic um, to the point that over the summer, because obviously so Barry Keegan's character does not want to go back to his uh, really shitty house and shitty family. And so uh, Felix, the rich guy, is like, come spend the summer at Saltburn, which is, you know, our gigantic sort of stately home. From that point... Stuff happens. I would I would say it's definitely not the movie I was expecting. Um, so so yeah, the first kind of third half, you're like, okay, fine, this is kind of like Bryce had revisited, you know, before yeah, yeah. the. Um, no, it definitely takes not just one turn but several turns. Um, the only thing I would warn is that it is it's, it's not it's not gory, it's not a thriller or anything, but it does have a few quite disturbing um, sex scenes. Um, so the woman next to me in the cinema retched on three different <laughs> occasions, which I, I regret to say I found incredibly funny. Um, but yeah, so maybe maybe don't go if you're like quite easily grossed out, I guess, or disturbed by sex okay. stuff. Um, but yeah, but no, I, I just had such a good time. It was so fun. I really, really loved it. Um, and yeah, and you will never be able to hear uh, Murder on the Dance Floor by Sophia Lisbexter um, in the <laughs> same way ever again. Trust me. Uh, Gavin? I've been going to a few book festivals, so I've been traveling a lot um, and staring out of train windows and delayed trains to various places and talking to very nice train staff. So that, I'm afraid, has been my escape route. But I've got a whole lot Physically escaping. (laughs) I've physically escaped, but I've had a lovely time because I was in Hexham a couple of days ago, which is just gorgeous, and Ilkley and various other places. So it's uh, it's been great. But uh, I'm quite glad not to be on a train. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah? Well... Unlike Marie, I do get very excited about going out because I hardly ever do. See, see. And but I promise you, my recommendation is not just because I was excited to be out of the house. I went to a gig for the first time in I think uh, years, um, and it was brilliant. Uh, Jonah Matranga, who is now tours under the name One Line Drawing, he used to be the lead singer of a bunch of bands in the nineties and two thousands called Far New End Original Gratitude. If you ever listen to um, Javanai's uh, mini pod about the history of emo, you might know those bands. Anyway, he's an absolutely brilliant singer-songwriter and uh, it was just amazing. He's hardly ever in the UK. Um, it was a small gig, only about 50 people, and it was just fantastic. And if you don't know him, look him up, One Line Drawing. Mine is uh, Michael Powell and Pressburger. Um just one of the most amazing partnerships in cinema. Um, there's a season running till the end of December, um, sort of centred in the BFI South Bank. Obviously, this is a very London-centric um, recommendation, so not everybody will be able to get down there. But The Red Shoes, um, one of Martin Scorsese's favourite films, is going to have a nationwide re-release in December. 
And you can get, if you like physical media, and why would you not, you can get 11 of their best films on DVD for less than £20, which is mental. Um, and I went to see um, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp um, in the cinema first time, which was just was just so astonishing and so wonderful. Um, but they have, you know, five, at least five other films that are as good as that. Um, they are the best. And that is the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you to Gavin. Thank you very much. Hannah. Thank you. Anne-Marie. Thank you. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Dorian Linsky with Marie Leconte, Hannah Fern and Gavin Esler. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producer was me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin and Chris Jones. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Thank you.